Chapter 6 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadia Fernandez. NadiaFernandez.com. The Deluge, Volume 2. By Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin. 1835 to 1906. Chapter 6. The horses bore Kmita and the Kimliches swiftly toward the Silesian boundary. They advanced with caution to avoid meeting Swedish scouts, for though the cunning Kimliches had passes given by Kuklinovsky and signed by Miller, still soldiers, though furnished with such documents, were usually subjected to examination. An examination might have an evil issue for Pan Andre and his comrades. They rode, therefore, swiftly, so as to pass the boundary in all haste and push into the depth of the emperor's territory. The boundaries themselves were not free from Swedish ravages, and frequently whole parties of horsemen rode into Silesia to seize those who were going to Yan Kazimir, but the Kimliches, during their stay at Chinstanhova, occupied continually with hunting individual Swedes, had learned through and through the whole region all the boundary roads, passages and paths where the chase was most abundant, and where as if in their own land. Along the road, old Kimlich told Pan Andrei what was to be heard in the Commonwealth, and Pan Andrei, having been confined so long in the fortress, forgetting his own pain, listened to the news eagerly, for it was very unfavourable to the Swedes, and heralded a near end to their domination in Poland. The army is sick of Swedish fortune and Swedish company, said old Kimlich. And as some time ago the soldiers threatened the headmans with their lives if they would not join the Swedes, so now the same men entreat Pototsky and send deputations asking him to save the Commonwealth from oppression, swearing to stand by him to the death. Some colonels also have begun to attack the Swedes on their own responsibility. Who begun first? Jagotsky the Starosta of Babimost, and Pankolesha. These began in Great Poland and annoyed the Swedes notably. There are many small divisions in the whole country, but it is difficult to learn the names of the leaders, for they conceal them to save their own families and poverty from Swedish vengeance. Of the army, that regiment rose first, which is commanded by Pan Voinilovich. Gabriel, he is my relative, though I do not know him. A genuine soldier. He is the man who rubbed out Pratsky's party, which was serving the Swedes and shot Pratsky himself. But now he has gone to the rough mountains beyond Krakow. There he cut up a Swedish division and secured the mountaineers from oppression. Are the mountaineers fighting with the Swedes already? They were the first to rise, but as they are stupid peasants, they wanted to rescue Krakow straight away with axes. General Douglas scattered them, 
for they knew nothing of the level country. But of the parties sent to pursue them in the mountains, not a man has returned. Pan Voinilovich has helped those peasants and now has gone himself to the marshal at Lyubovlia and joined his forces. Is Pan Lyubomirsky, the marshal, opposed to the Swedes? Reports disagreed. They said that he favoured this side and that, but when men began to mount their horses throughout the whole country, he went against the Swedes. He is a powerful man and can do them a great deal of harm. He alone might war with the king of Sweden. People say, too, that before spring there will not be one Swede in the Commonwealth. God grant that. How can it be otherwise, your grace? Since for the siege of Chenstehova, all are enraged against them. The army is rising, the nobles are fighting already, wherever they can. The peasants are collecting in crowds. And besides, the Tatars are marching. The Khan, who defeated Milnitsky and the Cossacks, and promised to destroy them completely, unless they would march against the Swedes, is coming in person. But the Swedes have still much support among magnates and nobles. Only those take their part who must, and even they are merely waiting for a chance. The Prince Voivoda of Vilna is the only man who has joined them sincerely, and that act has turned out ill for him. Kmita stopped his horse and at the same time caught his side, for terrible pain had shot through him. In God's name, cried he, suppressing a groan, tell me what is taking place with Radzivill. Is he all the time in Kiedani? Oh, Ivory Gate, said the old man. I know as much as people say, and God knows what they do not say. Some report that the prince, Voyaboda, is living no longer. Others, that he is still defending himself against Pan Sapieha, but is barely breathing. It is likely that they are struggling with each other in Podlyazje, and that Pan Sapieha has the upper hand, for the Swedes could not save the prince of Voyevoda. Now they say that, besieged in Tikotsin by Sapieha, it is all over with him. Praise be to God. The honest are conquering traitors. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Kiemlich looked from under his brows at Kmita, and knew not himself what to think, for it was known in the whole Commonwealth that if Radzivill had triumphed in the beginning over his own troops and the nobles who did not wish Swedish rule, it happened mainly thanks to Kmita and his men. But old Kemlich did not let that thought be known to his colonel and rode farther in silence. But what has happened to Prince Boguslav? asked Pan Andrei at last. I have heard nothing of him, your grace, answered Kemlich. Maybe he is in Tikotsin, and maybe with the elector. War is there at present, and the king of Sweden has gone to Prussia. But we, meanwhile, are waiting for our own king. God give him. For let him only show himself, all to a man will rise, and the troops will leave the Swedes straight away. 
Is that certain? Your Grace, I know only what those soldiers said, who had to be with the Swedes as Chenstahover. They are very fine cavalry. Some thousands strong under Zibroyek, Kalinsky and other colonels. I may tell your grace that no man serves there of his own will, except Kuklinovsky's ravagers. They wanted to get the treasures of Yasnagora. But all honourable soldiers did nothing but lament, and one quicker than another complained. We have enough of this Jew's service. Only let our king put a foot over the boundary. We will turn our sabres at once on the Swedes. But while he is not here, how can we begin? Whither can we go? So they complain. And in the other regiments, which are under the headmen's, it is still worse. This I know certainly, for deputations came from them to Pan Zebroik with arguments, and they had secret talks there at night. This Miller did not know, though he felt that there was evil about him. But is the prince for Evoda of Vilna besieged in Tikotsin? asked Pan Andrei. Kemlich looked again unquietly on Kmita, for he thought that surely a fever was seizing him if he asked to have the same information repeated. Still, he answered, besieged by Pan Sapieha. Just are thy judgments, God, said Kmita. He who might compare in power with kings has no one remain with him. In Tikotsin there is a Swedish garrison, but with the prince only some of his trustiest attendants have remained. Kmita's breast was filled with delight. He had feared the vengeance of the terrible magnate on Olenka, and though it seemed to him that he had prevented that vengeance with his threats, still he was tormented by the thought that it would be better and safer for Olenka and all the Belevichs to live in a lion's den than in Kiandani, under the hand of the prince, who never forgave any man. But now, when he had fallen, his opponents must triumph by the event. Now, when he was deprived of power and significance, when he was lord of only one poor castle, in which he defended his own life and freedom, he could not think of vengeance. His hand had ceased to weigh on his enemies. Praise be to God, praise be to God, repeated Kmita. He had his head so filled with the change in Radjvil's fortunes, so occupied with that which had happened during his stay in Chenstahova, and with the question, where was she whom his heart loved, and what had become of her, that a third time he asked Kemlich, You say that the prince is broken. Broken completely, answered the old man, but are you not sick? My side is burned. That is nothing, answered Mitter. Again they rode on silence. The tired horses lessened their speed by degrees, till at last they were going at a walk. That monotonous movement lulled to sleep Pan Andrei, who was mortally wearied, and he slept long, nodding in the saddle. He was roused only by the white light of day. 
he looked around with amazement, for in the first moment it seemed to him that everything through which he had passed in that night was merely a dream. At last he inquired, Is that you, Kimlich? Are we riding from Chenstehova? Of course, Your Grace. But where are we? Oh, ho, in Silesia already. Here the Swedes will not get us. That is well, said Mita, coming to his senses completely. But where is our gracious king living? At Glugov. We will go there then, bow down to our lord, and offer him service. But listen, old man, to me. I am listening, your grace. Kmita fell to thinking, however, and did not speak at once. He was evidently combining something in his head. He hesitated, considered, and at last said, It cannot be otherwise. I am listening, your grace, repeated Kimlich. Neither to the king nor to any man at court must you mutter who I am. I call myself Babinich. I am fearing from Chenstehova. Of the great gun and of Kuklinovsky, you may talk, so that my intentions be not misconstrued, and I be considered a traitor, for in my blindness I aided and served Prince Radzivil. Of this they may have heard at the court. I may speak of what your grace did in Chesnehova, but who will show that tis true till the siege is over? I will act at your command. The day will come for truth to appear at the top, added Kmita, as it were to himself. But first our gracious lord must convince himself. Later he also will give me his witness. Here the conversation was broken. By this time it had become perfect day. Old Kemlich began to sing matins, and Cosman Damien accompanied him with bass voices. The road was difficult, for the frost was cutting, and besides, the travellers were stopped continually and asked for news, especially if Chenstehova was resisting yet. Kmita answered that it was resisting, and would take care of itself. But there was no end to questions. The roads were swarming with travellers, the inns everywhere filled. Some people were seeking refuge in the depth of the country from the neighbouring parts of the Commonwealth before Swedish oppression. Others were pushing toward the boundary for news. From time to time appeared nobles who, having had enough of the Swedes, were going like Kmita to offer their services to the fugitive king. There were seen also attendants of private persons, at times smaller or larger parties of soldiers, from armies, which either voluntarily or in virtue of treaties with the Swedes had passed the boundaries, such, for instance, as the troops of Stefan Chasnyetsky. News from the Commonwealth had roused the hope of those exiles, and many of them were making ready to come home in arms. In all Silesia, and particularly in the provinces of Ratibor and Opol, it was boiling as in a pot. Messengers were flying with letters to the king and from the king. 
they were flying with letters to Chanietsky, to the primate, to Pan Koritsinsky, the chancellor, to Pan Varshitsky, the castellan Krakow, the first senator of the Commonwealth who had not deserted the cause of Jan Kazimir for an instant. Those lords, in agreement with the great queen, who was unshaken in misfortune, were coming to an understanding with one another, with the country and with the foremost men in it, of whom it was known that they would gladly resume allegiance to their legal lord. Messengers were sent independently by the marshal of the kingdom, the hetmans, the army and the nobles, who were making ready to take up arms. It was the eve of a general war, which in some places had broken out already. The Swedes put down these local outbursts either with arms or with the executioner's axe, but the fire quenched in one place flamed up at once in another. An awful storm was hanging over the heads of the Scandinavian invaders. The ground itself, though covered with snow, began to burn their feet. Threats and vengeance surrounded them on all sides. Their own shadows alarmed them. They went round like men astray. The recent songs of triumph died on their lips, and they asked one another in the greatest amazement, are these the same people who yesterday left their own king and gave up without fighting a battle? Yes, lords, nobles, army, an example unheard of in history, passed over to the conqueror. Towns and castles threw open their gates. The country was occupied. Never had a conquest cost fewer exertions, less blood. The Swedes themselves wondering at the ease with which they had occupied a mighty commonwealth, could not conceal their contempt for the conquered, who at the first gleam of the Swedish sword rejected their own king, their country, provided that they could enjoy life and goods in peace, or acquire new goods in the confusion. What, in his time, Count Veyhard had told the emperor's envoy, Nisola, the king himself, and all the Swedish generals repeated, There is no manhood in this nation. There is no stability. There is no order, no faith, no patriotism. It must perish. They forgot that that nation had still one feeling, especially that one whose earthly expression was Yajnagora, and in that feeling was rebirth. Therefore, the thunder of cannon, which was heard under the sacred retreat, found an echo at once in the hearts of all magnates, noble, town-dwellers and peasants. An outcry of awe was heard from the Carpathians to the Baltic, and the giant was roused from his torpor. That is another people, said the amazed Swedish generals, and all from Arvid Wittenberg, to the commandments of single castles sent to Karl Gustav in Prussia tidings filled with terror. The earth was pushing from under their feet. Instead of recent friends, they met enemies on all sides. Instead of submission, hostility. Instead of fear, 
a wild daring ready for everything, instead of mildness, ferocity, instead of long-suffering, vengeance. Meanwhile, from hand to hand, were flying in thousands throughout the whole commonwealth the manifestos of Yan Kazimir, which, issued the first in Silesia, had found no immediate echo. Now, on the contrary, they were seen in castles still free of the enemy. Wherever the Swedish hand was not weighing, the nobles assembled in crowds, large and small, and beat their breasts, listening to the lofty words of the fugitive king, who, recounting faults and sins, urged them not to lose hope, but hasten to the rescue of the fallen commonwealth. Though the enemy have already advanced far, it is not too late, wrote Yan Kazimir, for us to recover the lost provinces and towns, give due praise to God, satisfy the profane churches with the blood of the enemy, and restore the former liberties, laws and ancient enactments of Poland to their usual circuit, if only there is a return of that ancient Polish virtue and that devotion and love of God peculiar to your ancestor, virtues for which our great-grandfather, Sigismund, I honoured them before many nations. A return to virtue has already diminished these recent transgressions. Let those of you to whom God and his holy faith are dearer than aught else rise against the Swedish enemy. Do not wait for leaders or voivodas or for such an order of things as is described in public law. At present, the enemy have brought all these things to confusion among you. But do you join the first man to a second, a third to these two, a fourth to the three, a fifth to the four, and thus farther so that each one with his own subjects may come, and when it is possible, try resistance. Afterward, you will select a leader, join yourselves one party to another, and you will form an army. When the army is formed, and you have chosen a known chief over it, wait for our person, not neglecting an occasion, wherever it comes to defeat the enemy. If we hear of the occasion and your readiness and inclination, we will come at once and lay down our life wherever the defence of the country requires it. This manifesto was read even in the camp of Karl Gustav, in castles having Swedish garrisons, in all places wherever Polish squadrons were found. The nobles shed tears at every word of the king their king lord, and took an oath on crosses, on pictures of the most holy lady, and on scapulars, to please him, to give a proof of their readiness, while ardour was in their hearts, and their tears were not dry, they mounted here and there without hesitation, and moved on while hot against the Swedes. In this way the smaller Swedish parties began to melt and to vanish. This was done in Lithuania, in Mazovia, Great and little Poland, more than once nobles who had assembled at a neighbor's house for a christening, a name's day, a wedding or a dance, without any thought of war, finished the entertainment with this. 
that after they had taken a good share of drink, they struck like a thunderbolt and cut to pieces the nearest Swedish command. Then, amid songs and shouts, they assembled for the road. Those who wished to hunt rode farther, changed into a crowd greedy for blood, from a crowd into a party which began steady war. Subject peasants and house servants joined the amusement in throngs. Others gave information about single Swedes or small squads disposed incautiously through the villages. And the number of balls and masquerades increased with each day. Joyousness and daring personal to the people were bound up with these bloody amusements. They disguised themselves gladly as Tartars the very name of which filled the Swedes with alarm, for among them were current marvellous accounts and fables touching the ferocity, the terrible and savage bravery of those sons of the Crimean steppes, with whom the Scandinavian had never met hitherto. Besides, it was known universally that the Khan, with about a hundred thousand of the horde, was marching to succour Jan Casimir, and the nobles made a great uproar while attacking Swedish commands, from which wonderful disorder resulted. The Swedish colonels and commandments in many places were really convinced that Tartars were present and retreated in haste to larger fortresses and camps, spreading everywhere erroneous reports and alarm. Meanwhile, the neighborhoods which were freed in this manner from the enemy were able to defend themselves and change an unruly rabble into the most disciplined of armies. But more terrible for the Swedes than masquerades of nobles, or than the Tartars themselves, were the movements of the peasants. Excitement among the people began with the first day of the siege of Chenstehova. And ploughmen, hitherto silent and patient, began here and there to offer resistance here and there to take scythes and flails and help nobles. The most brilliant Swedish generals looked with the greatest alarm at these crowds, which might at any moment turn into a genuine deluge and overwhelm beyond rescue the invaders. Terror seemed to them the most appropriate means by which to crush in the beginning this dreadful danger. Carl Gustav cajoled still and retained with words of kindness those polish squadrons which had followed him to prussia he had not spared flattery on konietspolski the celebrated commander from Zbaraj. this commander stood at his side with six thousand cavalry which at the first hostile meeting with the elector spread such terror and destruction among the Prussians, that the elector, abandoning the fight, agreed as quickly as possible to the conditions. The king of Sweden sent letters also to the hetmans, the magnates and the nobles, full of graciousness, promises and encouragement to preserve loyalty to him. But at the same time he issued commands to his generals and commandments to destroy with fire and sword every opposition within the country, and especially to cut to pieces peasants' parties. Then began a period of iron military rule. 
the Swedes cast aside the semblance of friendship. The sword, fire, pillage, oppression took the place of the former pretended goodwill. From the castles they sent strong detachments of cavalry and infantry in pursuit of the masqueraders. Whole villages with churches and priests' dwellings were leveled to the earth. Nobles taken prisoners were delivered to the executioner. The right hands were cut from captured peasants. Then they were sent home. These Swedish detachments were especially savage in Great Poland, which, as it was the first to surrender, was also the first to rise against foreign dominion. Commandment Stein gave orders on a certain occasion to cut the hands from more than 300 peasants. In towns they built permanent gibbets, which every day were adorned with new victims. Pontus de la Gardie did the same in Lithuania and Yimud, where the noble villages took up arms first and after them the peasants, because in general it was difficult for the Swedes in the disturbance to distinguish their friends from their enemies, no one was spared. But the fire put down in blood instead of dying grew without ceasing, and a war began which was not on either side a question merely of victory, castles, towns or provinces, but of life or death. Cruelty increased hatred, and they began not to struggle, but to exterminate each the other without mercy. End of chapter 6